You may have wondered why I titled the sermon when they call for open-mindedness, because it sure doesn't seem like Nebuchadnezzar is very open-minded in this chapter. And indeed, he is not uh, being very open-minded, but that's precisely the point, because we've already seen in chapters 1 through 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had called for open-minded pluralism, but we're seeing that that pluralism leads to the fiery furnace of this chapter, and the two usually go hand in hand. Some of the, I think, greatest bigots against Christianity have, people, have been people who have been open-minded about all religions, all philosophies, all viewpoints, and the only heresy for them is a person who has absolutes, who thinks they're wrong on a given point. This past Wednesday, Kathy and I were uh, woken up by the um, alarm clock to two KFAB announcers who were falling all over themselves, trying to outdo each other and saying nasty things about a Christian congressman from uh, Oklahoma. And this congressman's crime <laughs> that they were so upset about was that uh, he wanted the rating system for movies uh, to be a little bit better because he said they had gone as a family to see Schindler's List and he said their eight-year-old eight boy was exposed to full-body uh, uh, nudity. And he says, as far as I could gather, he was not trying to censor the film or say people should not watch it, but he says, I would like to know as a parent what was going on in a film. Now, that, these two announcers just thought that was a horrible thing for this person to be saying. Uh, they've been advocates for years for open-mindedness on all kinds of issues, but they weren't being very open-minded with this congressman's views. Uh, they were extremely nasty and hostile to them to him. And uh, Abraham Kuyper in his book on Calvinism points out this is really the logical uh, end result of any pagan culture. And he pointed out that any culture is going to have either a religious or an anti-religious bias. Uh, it's got to. And the kind of open-mindedness that pluralism imposes, and I, I guess I should point out that pluralism really has to be imposed because it doesn't naturally creep into human hearts to give everybody's viewpoint the same kind of credence you give to your own viewpoint. But uh, it, it is something that has to be imposed just like Nebuchadnezzar did. Uh, it wasn't just the God, remember he says uh, at the end of chapter 3, that anybody who speaks against the God of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, is going to be in trouble. Well, he did really the same with the others. They wanted inclusiveness. They wanted open-mindedness. And even the naming of the four Hebrews in chapter 1 was an exercise in, um, what do they call it, um, sensitivity training, you might say, because they were various religions. You look at the names of the gods that they were named after. But anyway, the kind of open-mindedness that pluralism mandates eventually leads to conflict with Christianity. We've already seen Nebuchadnezzar's open-mindedness in chapters 1 through 2. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw that every religion in the empire was represented in the temple of Marduk and was licensed in the temple of Marduk. Even he even recognizes Jehovah as being a legitimate God. That's why he includes those articles from the temple in his uh, temple uh, of Marduk. And Nebuchadnezzar also included every nationality in government. Now, you look at some of the pagan societies back then, and that did not always happen. Many times they were racist. They would only allow people from their own race to be involved in government. Not so Nebuchadnezzar. He was very inclusive. All of the nationalities uh, were represented. 
Uh, chapters 1 through 4 tells us he was open to new ideas so long as they promoted his cause. In chapter 2, he was willing to acknowledge even that Jehovah was more powerful than his own God. And that's pretty impressive when you think about the pagan cultures back then. And uh, uh, people like that kind of freedom in America. On the surface, it sounds good. You know, it, it makes us feel like maybe there's going to be some protections for my religion as well so that I can freely practice. Uh, like the later empires, Greece and Rome, and I'm not sure about Medo-Persia, I wasn't able to study that out, but like the later empires, Greece and Rome, Babylon was politically correct when it came to tolerating all religions, all worldviews, all ideologies, with one little hitch, if they were willing to be licensed and come under one roof, okay? Every idol in the empire was represented in the temple of Marduk, and that's hinted at in chapter 1, verse 2. In Greece, it was coming under the pantheon of all of the gods. Now, unfortunately, this is the kind of pluralism that many evangelicals have been pursuing, and they feel this is the only safety that we can have uh, for our own practice of freedom of religion. They've been uh, pursuing that kind of pluralism. They're willing to be licensed, have their schools licensed, their churches licensed. They're willing to not preach on certain things if the IRS tells them so that they can have freedom. And our founding fathers in America would have said, that is not freedom, that is slavery. In fact, one of the things that so infuriated many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence was the fact that England was trying to license the preachers and the, the churches in this nation. And there are dozens of nations down through history that have used pluralism as a weapon against Christianity. And it's going to be increasingly used here in the States if there are not major changes that come about. Uh, increasingly, I think you've seen the same thing in the, in the news media and other places like that, that the only viewpoint that is not tolerated is the view that does not tolerate all views, which is us, because we don't believe the other views are, what, are right. We're willing to say that they are wrong. Now, let me transport you back into Babylon to see how this pluralism worked out back then and why it immediately set up a conflict. If we were living in Babylon, we would want child sacrifice to be outlawed. I mean, that's a very reasonable uh, rule to make. The, the responsibility of government is to protect the lives of the citizens there. But what they would have said in, in Babylon is that is terribly intolerant because that would be going against the religion of Baal worship. Uh, we would be opposed to prostitution, and we would want that outlawed, especially child prostitution, and yet that would be completely contrary to the religion of Estart, etc., etc. And so the Jew who was living back then, who was standing up for the rights and the lives of these children, would be considered to be the narrow-minded bigot. And it's amazing how the media can change things around and make good look bad and make bad look good. You know, it's the doctors who suck out the, ba the brains of babies in the womb who are treated as the heroes many times, and we are the ones who are seen as being the threat to society. And I believe that is always the direction that pluralistic society heads, and pluralism is the enemy of Christianity. It is not the, uh, the protector of Christianity, as many Christians uh, hope. Uh, we've got to realize, and I think I've already said this in chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is unwilling to be just one more idol in the main temple of Marduk in Babylon. He declares himself to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. 
In fact, the whole book of Daniel is very, very offensive to pluralism because it declares God to be a king over kings and Nebuchadnezzar as having a responsibility to answer to God. That is not something pluralism wants. They want an equal viewpoint, uh, equal hearing for all viewpoints. And I think it's interesting that uh, in America, during a, uh, this is the time when we are shouting the loudest for total religious freedom that Christianity is becoming increasingly marginalized. It is not by accident. It is not by accident at all. This has puzzled many Christians who are advocates of um, uh, religious pluralism, and they're advocating that because they want freedoms for themselves, but it ought not to be a puzzlement. This morning I want to show it is the logical outflow of pluralism. Today I'm just going to look at the first seven verses, analyzing the disease that has struck America And uh, we're going to be looking at humanism's ideal, the problem that humanism faces in trying to achieve that ideal, and we can praise the Lord, there is problems in achieving that, and then thirdly, the solutions that many times have been proposed. First of all, the ideal. Humanism's ideal is to promote unity in a pluralistic society. Now, on the surface, that's actually a very admirable goal. And in the Church of Jesus Christ, we have a very similar goal, uh, uh, the unity we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You look in the book of Revelation, and it points out that every tribe, people from every tribe and language and nation, are one in the Spirit, and that's whether they are rich or poor, slave or free, and yet it's done without sacrificing the diversity. And so, in a sense, it is a good goal that is being pursued, and yet because it is pursued in the wrong way and with the wrong standards, that goal can very easily become demonic. Let me just give you an illustration in terms of the United Nations. United Nations has taken their motto, their goal, straight out of the Bible. And uh, in front of the United Nations building on big marble uh, plaque are these words that are taken from Isaiah. Quote, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah 2, verse 4, unquote. Now, the UN has very conveniently left out the context which shows the only way that such peace can be achieved in this world. It's through the nation submitting to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the nation submitting to the laws of Jesus Christ. Now, those are the very things that the United Nations has been fighting against in the Sudan and putting embargoes on Bibles. They told Peter Hammond if he tried to bring Bibles in, they would shoot him down. Uh, they've uh, persecuted Christians in, in various countries, Angola and Sudan and other places like that. And so here's a good goal taken right out of the Bible, and yet it becomes demonic because of the way in which they are pursuing that and the standards. Now, those who have aspired to one world government have uh, three things in common under point A there, humanism's ideal. First of all, they have pushed for a one world leader, or if they're not one world federalist, at least a central leader within a nation. Uh, Verse 1 begins, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image. And throughout this passage, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar being the one who builds, who summons, who commands, who controls. There is central power in one individual. And um, you might think that that kind of uh, 
centralized power in the hands of one individual would be feared by the humanists. You'd think that a pluralistic society would avoid that, and yet it's ironic. Down through history, pluralistic societies have consistently gravitated more and more toward exactly that type of a situation where all of the power rests in the prime minister or the president or whatever name you might put to this particular king, because who else is going to impose the pluralism? Now, we don't have time to develop the reasons as to why this is so, but let me just try in a nutshell to explain to you uh, the reason for that slide. When pluralism is imposed, and we've already explained why it has to be imposed, when it is imposed upon a society, automatically special interest groups will rise to the surface. And those special interest groups, which get favors from the government, in order to do that, give up freedoms. And the more favors they seek for society, the more freedoms that they give up. But the more favors that come, the more bureaucratization there is. The more bureaucratization there is, the less efficient government runs, which makes people more and more disposed. We've got to have streamlined government. We've got to have more centralized power. Now, even if you didn't follow all of that, just examine. There have not been a huge number of pluralistic nations in the past, but you examine some of the pluralistic nations and you will see over time, more and more, they idealize the, uh, the, 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 the presence of power in the hands of one individual. It's interesting in America to see that when the president uh, has in the past taken on uh, extra powers because of an emergency or war or something that, that happens, uh, it's rare to see them relinquishing that power afterwards. Even after the emergency is gone, the power continues to be exercised so that now the president is far more powerful than he was 200 years ago. And now we have people in Congress who are advocating you know, that the president doesn't have enough power. Uh, even the Republicans want to give the line item veto and some of you may be supporters of that, but you need to read, before you support it wholesale, you need to read some of the discussions in the Federalist Papers and elsewhere uh, that they had originally and why they were dead set against having the line item veto for the president because it gave too much power uh, and, and it destroyed some of the balance that was there. Uh, our Congress has uh, had little will to resist unconstitutional use of executive orders. In fact, some in our Congress have openly said that we should have a government under the United Nations where the Secretary General would be basically ruling the world. And so even in America, we can see this kind of a slide. Now, coupled with that uh, first uh, sub-point is the third one, centralized order. Verse 1 ends by saying, He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, and the purpose here, I think, was much the same as for the original Tower of Babel. It was a centralization of governmental agencies. If every administrator and judge and official throughout the empire is accountable to Nebuchadnezzar, and if you look at verses 2 through 3, you'll see he, they were accountable to him. That means that states' rights have been destroyed. And that is exactly what we found in the four empires, that there was increasingly, over time, a diminishing of the power of regional and local governments and an increasing of the power in Babylon, in Athens, and in Rome. Okay, so uh, this is something, right from the Tower of Babel and on, Satan has had a strategy uh, of, of having centralization uh, of power in a nation. And I think it's not without reason that uh, there are many congressmen 
who are very eager to have a constitutional convention. And many Christians think, well, to balance the budget or something else like that. There are other ways to balance it, but they have substitute constitutions to put in place if we were to have a constitutional convention. And I think Christians need to be aware of that and they need to be fearful of that because these substitute constitutions uh, are designed to destroy states' states' rights and to reapportion the whole country into territories. Now, the argument is this is making us more, would make us more streamlined and efficient. But verse 1 also speaks of a common devotion. It says um, in verse 1, The king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width uh, 6 cubits. And he set it up. Uh, That image shows the deification of the state. And I think there's been a tendency for governments to begin to act uh, like God, to begin to be put into that position by the people. Uh, I think communist countries especially have uh, shown the, the tendency to have the state supersede all other devotions. You know, they don't mind you having devotions to another religion or to family or whatever, but it can't supersede your devotion to the state. And uh, sometimes it's been accompanied by a symbol like this. This was me- really merely a symbol, uh, this bowing down to the image. But there are symbols that various nations have used. You can think of the swastika and how that was a, a sort of a unifying symbol for that nation. And that's occurred in other nations as well. Now, I I think this push can be seen in Western countries, too. It's not as obvious as in verse 1, where you have a a visible image of idolatry, but it is idolatry just as much. Uh, Rush Dooney and many others have pointed out that the, the person or persons that make the laws of a nation are the God of that nation. You know, rather than implementing God's laws, we have set up our own laws that are in competition with God's laws. And uh, I think it is a disastrous thing because it leads people to realize uh, many politicians think there's no power higher than the state. The state is not accountable to God, nothing higher, which means that the state can act like God. And even Christians many times have fallen into this. They think the state is the only solution to save us from the medical crisis or famine or poverty or unemployment. The state has become messianic in many ways. You look at some of the language that is used to describe that. Even in atheistic nations, they will talk. They don't even believe in God or anything being sacred, but they will talk of uh, the sacred motherland or fatherland or sacred duty to the state. Um, Lenin uh, said he didn't believe in heaven, but he talked about the proletariat uh, and its role to set up heaven on earth. You read some of the modern political theorists, uh, and even uh, Moynihan, in uh, some of his writings, has come across this way. But they've begun to use religious language to describe the power of the state. And so really, all three of these themes that we see here are ideals that are beginning to come in modern society. Now, we can praise the Lord. Uh, that's not where it stops, because in verses 2 through 4, we see major problems that they have in achieving that ideal. And I want to look, first of all, at the administrative diversity. Look at the huge range of officers that are described in verse 2. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now the question comes, why did Nebuchadnezzar not just call in, you know, the top brass? Why did he call in all of these bureaucrats from every province everywhere? I mean, that would have been an extremely expensive venture to go on. There must have been some good reason, and there was. You study history and you realize these bureaucrats gave him a fit. They gave him all kinds of problems. And uh, he was trying to do something uh, about that. And uh, I want to uh, read you a, a little uh, quote, a description from uh, an author who describes how bureaucrats uh, many times can upset the plans of tyrants. Uh, even here in the States, and I think it's unfortunate that it goes this way, but the bureaucrats in Washington, I believe, are far more uh, powerful than the politicians are. And uh, I want to read to you uh, uh, how even that kind of a mess can be used by the Lord to stop the progress of humanism. This is one of the things we can praise the Lord for, even though when you're in the midst of uh, fighting the bureaucrats, it's not too great. This author says, A strong president is one who can get the government to follow his orders, but the bureaucracy is unmanageable. Galbraith says that when he was the federal government's chief price controller during World War II, he had no control over what happened. Decisions were made by technocrats on committees. Lawyers, accountants, economists, specialists of all kinds, and he was nearly helpless to do anything but ratify them. The independence of the bureaucracy from political authority means that bureaucrats do not merely enforce law or administer law, they make law. They are the law. That is one reason nothing seems to change much in social democracies when voters throw out one party in favor of another. Uh, Harold Lasky, who's from the uh, London School of Economics, he shows how this has happened in numerous different countries, and he says the only solution that a country has for that is to replace political decision-making with administrative fiat, which is despotism. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Uh, he's, he's saying, we've got to have centralization here because they're not cooperating. We're going to begin to impose an administrative fiat. Verse 4 indicates three further diversities. Um, then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. The word peoples refers to the nationalities that existed throughout that empire. And racial strife, I think, has done more to stop Satan's uh, desires for one world government than probably any other factor. We are not supportive in any way of racial uh, conflict. We want racial peace to exist, but as long as humanism rules, there are going to be battles in the Balkans and in the Middle East and between various races, uh, and that is one of the checks and balances, again, that the Lord has brought, and it drives the United Nations nuts. They cannot, they cannot solve these kinds of problems like they want to. Uh, we, we may fear some of those things, and they are fearful things, but I think they have done more to stop centralization of power. Uh, the, the third word there, Nations, uh, or the second word there, refers to geographic boundaries, irrespective of what races live within it. And I think that is another challenge to a one-world government as well. That is nationalism, you know, loyalty to a country. 
And that many times conflicts with the desires of centralized government. And I don't need to spend much time on that. And then finally, it refers to languages. Languages have been a huge barrier to humanistic unity. And so you can see that Nebuchadnezzar has a great deal of problems on his hand. Praise the Lord, you know. United Nations has problems on their hands. They can't just do anything that they want. They've got to overcome those. And there's three ways in which Nebuchadnezzar sought to overcome the problem that was there. The first part of the solution was to impose minimal conformity on the entire empire. Now, we're, we're talking about minimal conformity. We're not talking about conformity to the normal laws of the land because they had maximal conformity there, and there's a plethora of new laws that existed. But we're talking about a minimal conformity in the areas where they normally would grant diversity. Okay? So they're taking away certain areas to show their authority over those aspects of diversity. For example, it doesn't take much to enforce federal control over state jurisdiction. All it takes is forcing one act of submission in an area that is under state control. It could be speed limits, it could be education, it could be anything else. And once the federal authority is granted, then submission in all of the other areas becomes much easier. Okay, do you follow there? And of course, I think we've seen this happening over and over again in the last 100 years in America. What Nebuchadnezzar was doing here was brilliant, and history tells us he was extremely successful. Secondly, humanism seeks to make the conformity attractive, and he does this in a number of ways. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. That at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So first of all, this act was made as attractive as possible. Uh, there was a huge rally with all of the emotions that a rally can stir up. There was awe-inspiring music. It was a public event where people's conformity could be seen. It could be rewarded. There was uh, peer pressure that was involved. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would have had a hard time resisting that. They would have stood out like sore thumbs. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of a situation, but it is hard to resist that kind of conformity. He had well-crafted this. It is rare that centralization, or powers are taken from local to the, to the, the central powers, is done without trying in some way to make it appear necessary and attractive. Uh, sometimes even music uh, is used to stir the emotions. You can think of the huge rallies that Hitler staged with the music there. You can think of some of the modern totalitarian states, Romania and Albania and uh, North Korea. Very regularly, they use music to try to manipulate the emotions. Uh, uh, China uh, has used that to some extent as well. And I think that uh, music can be a powerful medium for good. It can be a powerful medium for bad. Analyze some kind of effect that that music can have. There have been people who have analyzed uh, television programs and shown how just the music makes you um, prejudiced in one direction or another on the stories that are being given. Analyze that. Music has been used many times uh, by the devil. But uh, there are other things that can um, uh, factor in there as well to make things attractive. If the states go along with federal plans, uh, there will be money. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we, we I think, mistake uh, true 
local government action for a counterfeit. And I think what the Republicans offered in, in terms of block grants is really not a whole lot different than the other. If that was truly handing over power to the states, then uh, why not just remove the taxes by that amount and let the states, if they so choose, uh, tax? But that would remove federal, uh, uh, federal authority. And I think we need to analyze what kinds of actions, why are they making it look attractive in the way that they do? Other examples, if a church submits to Caesar's demands, there will be tax exemptions. I think tax exemptions, and um, I think the church should be tax exempt, uh, but I think, uh, uh, what are the things where you take tax deductions, you know, on your income tax? I think those have done more to promote liberal causes than any, I think we would be well served if nobody could take any uh, uh, deductions on their tax forms for what they give. But anyway, that's, that's, that's beside the point. Um, what we Politicians, yes, being masterful at making centralization look attractive and necessary. That's what we were looking at. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar makes nonconformity very unattractive, to say the least. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, we don't have fiery furnaces today, but we have things that can work just as effectively uh, uh, number of years ago, the threat of war between the states was a very effective, uh, well, it wasn't effective at that time, war actually ended up happening, but since then, that threat has been effective in keeping states in line. The withdrawal of federal money has been effectively used. Uh, threats of removing tax-exempt status from churches, I think those are a sample of the ways that governments continue to encourage people to compromise so that this ideal of unity in diversity can be achieved. Now next week we're going to be seeing how God calls citizens to civil disobedience when the government calls us to sin. And uh, uh, we're going to be seeing how we need to uh, seek to avoid that kind of confrontation, if at all possible. As much as lies within you, seek to live peaceably with all men. But there are times when you cannot avoid it, the government commands you to do something, you're called to civil disobedience. And hopefully we'll look at some of the gracious ways in which we can be involved in that. But I want to end by suggesting six action steps that we can take based on this passage. And you can spend more time perhaps in your family, in your home groups, uh, discussing the implications of these. The first action step in your outlines there is to defend the crown rights of King Jesus over every area of life. And one of the reasons for the need for this is Christians deny the crown rights of King Jesus. I mean, now you can understand when the world denies it, but when the church itself denies those crown rights, it is a crying shame. And we need to be educating the pulpit. When we come to the Lord's table, we're not just professing that Jesus Christ is our Savior. We are professing He is our Lord, and we will follow Him wherever He goes. He, he demands holiness of our lives. He demands changes in our lives. Secondly, recognize the dangers of pluralism. While we must show respect for other people, we must never fall into the trap of treating all views as being equal. Christ certainly did not. Uh, uh, Christ demanded submission. Psalm 2 demands of nations, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in his ire. In uh, Isaiah 42, it says that Christ's goal is to implement his law in every nation. 
in every nation. Uh, in verse 1, it describes the baptism of Christ. Then it goes on to say, He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. That is not pluralism. That is submitting to King Jesus and obeying his laws. And you know, even in terms of our personal lives, the Lord's Supper stands against any idea, any notion of the equality of religions. Uh, it declares Jesus Christ is the only way. It excludes idolaters. It calls us to unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, unconditional loyalty <coughs> to Christ. And if you have made public profession to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've said before the congregation, Lord, I want to follow you and I pledge myself to be your loyal soldier, this feast is for you. It is really for God's people, those who have covenanted together with him. Thirdly, we must take the first and second commandments seriously. God treats idolatry as being serious, whether it's on the individual level, church level, or whether it's the state. Uh, you will not be excused for submitting to idolatry just because it's the state that has called for that idolatry. It is serious. So one of the books that I'm recommending for uh, further study in this whole area of how pervasively idolatry has affected Christians and how it has affected our land is a book by Herbert Schlossberg called Idols for Destruction. So I see some nods out there. You've, you've read this. It's an excellent, excellent book. And we need more men, women, and children who are willing to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and not bow the knee to the idols of our land. Fourth, we must recognize there can only be lasting unity in Christ Jesus. He is the only solution. His grace breaks down the middle wall of transition. Transition, middle wall of, what's it called? Separation, partition, there you go. And his grace transcends all of the national barriers and the cultural barriers and the language barriers. There needs to be unity in the church, racial unity. There needs to be social unity. And the Lord's Supper speaks to us, I believe, of exactly that unity. It speaks of there being one bread, one body, not two bodies. And when we enter into communion with Christ, we are declaring that we are also entering into communion with his body, which means that we need to enter into fellowship with those who are Hispanic believers and black believers and Asian believers. There's got to be racial uh, unity in the church of Jesus Christ. And only his grace can achieve that. Fifthly, this unity must respect legitimate diversity. Christ does not erase the national and the, the, the language and the regional and cultural differences that exist out there. He includes them. Now that means that we need to bend if we're going to be reaching out in Omaha and if we're going to have the kind of unity that the Scripture calls for. Uh, Presbyterians have a hard time changing but if we're ever going to have joint services with a black congregation, we're going to have to change big time. We're going to have to bend big time in order to accommodate that unity that we have in Christ. Never compromising scripture, but compromising in the areas that are not principles, that are not things that uh, scripture says uh, we must stand straight on. Finally, we can see that the best that the world can do is to force conformity, but conformity is not enough. It is not enough. If, for example, with our children, all we do is we impose outward conformity with outward sanctions, 
and there does need to be conformity. But if that's all that we do, when they leave the home, what's going to happen? There aren't any sanctions, and they very, very well may pitch the principles. We need to be reaching the hearts and seeking to have our children transformed because that's what God's grace does. It does not impose an outward conformity. It transforms us by his grace. And that's what we need to be seeking, a transformation of our individual lives, of our church, and of our society. 